Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 161 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in the realm of music enthusiasts and vinyl collectors, few names command as much respect and admiration as my latest podcast guest, Keb Darge. The Scottish DJ and music producer is an outspoken fella, to say the least. But this guy has an uncanny ability to unearth rare and forgotten musical treasures. Over the past 40 plus years, Keb has been heavily involved in the Northern Soul, Deep Funk, Rockabilly and 60s garage scenes. On this episode, we'll hear the true story about his journey in music, from dance competitions to a fascination with obscure music genres that led to him exploring the depths of record distribution warehouses all over the planet. This fella had control of Madame Jojo's every Friday night for 18 years, every Saturday night for 10 years, playing incredible music. And as you'll hear on this podcast, Keb met Paul Weller whilst DJing at a birthday party for his sister, Nikki Weller. This led to a great friendship, Keb sourcing rare records for Mr. Weller, leading to them DJing together at nights in London and Europe. And suffice to say, as you'll hear on this podcast, those nights got pretty messy. The pair also ended up collaborating on a brilliant compilation album in 2010 called Lost and Found, Real R&B and Soul. Now, I should say there's some pretty fruity language on this, and I've edited some of it out, but there came a point where it just became impossible, to be fair. But you are going to love this episode. Let's get into it. Keb Dodge, thanks for joining me. Hi, uh, brother. It's a pleasure to be with you. With your ginger and all. Is it ginger? <laughs> it, was, it was ginger once upon a time, yeah. The kids have turned it grey. Oh, I, I, well, you see, your own fault. I used to beat the living shit out of my kids, and I never had any of that. <laughs> you just lost yours, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, look, let's kick off. Uh, this is the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, but what I want to kick off with, first of all, is what it was that ignited this passion for music in you. Me, it was the young boy going to discos, wasn't really interested in music, just was interested in young girls. And then I was in the Taekwondo, 1973, 74 Christmas Taekwondo party on RAF base, and three boys went up to the DJ and handed him some 45. And it was all the state of the day, like ABBA and uh, Gary Glitter and all that. And then this music changed into this, like, pounding Motown that was a bit more violent. And these boys started dancing and spinning and doing, doing fancy tricks. And I thought, fucking hell, if I can dance like that, I'm bound to have knowledge of a young lady. So I asked them, what the fuck was that? What were you doing? Well, that was Northern Soul. I'm like, right, what is it? Where can I go? What am I doing? Where do I go? I would go to Wigan on Saturday. Right, I'm going to Wigan. So I was into it for the dancing for the first year. But I was buying records to take back up to the north of Scotland because nobody where I was knew what the music was apart from the RAF boys. And then gradually I started getting into the, the say, well, I don't really like that one, but this one's great. I'm going to buy that in. And then I started paying attention to the music more. So it took me about a year before I appreciated there was goodings and birdings and all that. I was just dancing. That was me at first. Dance, 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 dance. Anything I'll do as long as I'm done. And then 75, I started DJing and I started being a lot more picky then. Let's talk about the dancing because, so where, how are you learning that? Because this is pre-YouTube. You can't watch a little education video. Who's teaching you the moves? So yeah, the tricks and all that, I just sort of made up ourselves. So I was going to Taekwondo three days a week or three nights a week and all that. And most of the other boys, like, I used to go to all nighters in Dundee and Edinburgh and everyone was Taekwondo, Wing Chun, Shotokan Karate. They were all doing some kind of martial arts and they could spin their legs around their heads and that and then, and then think, right, I'm going to do that on the ground and then come up spinning. Then I'm going to flip over and do like two hooking kicks and it'll look like a dance trick. The basic footwork, that probably started with the rock and roll boys in the 50s, you know, we just speed it up a bit. And another thing was, because you're doing the martial arts, you've got really good balance, so you can move really quickly without losing your balance and you can spin around on the spot really quickly without losing your balance. So martial arts would have a lot to answer for, yeah. I read in research, and you're never sure how much of this is true, but you were entering dance competitions and there was even like a TV performance or something, is that right? In the end of dancer competitions, we went down to the, what was it, the beach ballroom in Aberdeen to take the piss out of the wankers that were going to enter of the dance competition and then they announced the prize money and I thought holy shit how much? 500 pounds this was 1978 or whatever fucking hell I'm entering I want that money I can buy records with the money so I entered it and I won and then I was flown down to London to the Empire Ballroom End of that, but I didn't win. But I got in a good position and they just threw money at me I was like fuck me a couple of grand I made out of the whole thing in 79 and that was it. That's when I moved down to London. I thought, right, I'm moving to London. I'm going to buy records. I'm going to focus on DJ. And I'm richer than my wildest dreams. <laughs> I didn't intend to. It was just when they said the money, I want the money. I love the fact you're observing these people just going, what a lot of fucking idiots. And then you're like, oh, no, hold on. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Northern Soul comes first then in terms of, but then we get into all these other genres and we'll, we'll talk about this constant act of discovery, this treasure hunt that you seem to be on in life to find new music. And by, and by that, I don't mean new music that's being created now. It's just music that's undiscovered or you haven't heard yet. This real kind of thirst to listen to, to stuff that you haven't come across before. I'm an obsessive character. I've realised that now. So the tight one, though, I became Scottish champion twice. I had to be the best. I had to fucking dig in be the best. The dancing, I became sort of the best in Scotland. I had to be the best. Then the record hunting, I had to be the best. But the problem with that is, uh, I was 
buying everything I fucking could. After fucking 20 years in Northern, I've heard it all. I've got them all now. I'm bored. What else is there? Right, Rockabilly. Hey, Rockabilly. Now, when I go into Rockabilly, Rockabilly had been pretty well done, so the process speeded up with me talking to Rockabilly collectors. And I was getting all the stuff that I didn't know. Gimme, 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 gimme. 10, 15 years, another, right, done that. What's next? And at the same time I was doing Rockabilly, I was doing funk. And with funk, I found that the amount of 45 good ones, funk-wise, is pretty fucking small compared to the likes of Northern Rockabilly or Garage, you know? So every 100 really good Northern records, there's one good funk record, even if that, there's not that many. So that didn't last long either. Well, it lasted me like 15, 20 years, and I made a fucking fortune out of it. But I was bored with it. Within the first 10 years, it's like, I want to move on. I want to do something else. I'm bored, but the crowd's enjoying it. So that's the thing. So you're collecting, but you're also introducing others to this this music that you're discovering through DJing too. Hi. So I get the excitement. I hear someone, and I'll get excited. I hear a record I don't know, mostly from the 60s and 70s, from 50s, like, but mainly 60s. Just, you know, I'm fucking hell listening to that. That's brilliant. And then I think, if I play that to a crowd, they'll probably get that same feeling of fucking hell listening to that. That's brilliant. And I... I don't care about them. I enjoy watching them getting that feeling. It's like a feeling of triumph for my ego. You know, I'll put that record on and watch them go, fucking hell, what was that, Kevin? I think, yeah, I found that. No, 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 no. And it's entirely ego. That's all it is. I'm taking them on a musical journey to my DNA, mixing, juxtaposing various sonic structures, frolics. It's just ego. <laughs> we'll talk about Weller and your connection with Weller and and stuff. But as it is the Paul Weller fan podcast, I wonder did Paul's music ever enter your world, the jam, the style council at all? Were they, these weren't things you were hunting out, presumably? No, oh, in nineteen seventy-seven or something like that, the jam came up to play in Aberdeen when I was still in Aberdeen, and my mates were saying, "Come on, kid, we're going to see this band. They're sort of like a bit like Northern, but punk and Northern fused together." I thought, "All right, then." So I went. I fucking pissed. I didn't. So I was brainwashed into Northern, Northern, so I just got pissed, stay interested and all that. It was later on when I was doing the shows with and all that, I was listening to other fucking songs and fucking hell, fucking hell, this is great, Paul, who writes your songs for you? I do. I thought, oh, you're a clever fucker. But in the 70s, I didn't appreciate it because all I wanted was Northern. I, it was a very tribal area of the 70s, and I'm, you know, very yeah. tribal. Into Northern, I used to secretly buy the odd punk records that I liked sitting on the beaches and hide them in case my mates saw them, because you're not meant to listen to punk if you didn't know them. I found out fucking years later that everyone else was buying punk records and hiding them in case we saw them. Oh, so it was a very strong tribal thing. <laughs> so you're buying these records, and by the vintage funk and the soul music in the 70s, you end up becoming mates with some of these stars. Is that right? So like people like Curtis Mayfield and Isaac Hayes and stuff. Mayfield was then, um, there was some video from some crowd up north one of the guys used to work at Soul Bowl and he had this pop pick with Curtis Mayfield in it, flagging off Margaret Thatcher, and they wanted some dancers dance on the video. This is late 80s. Can I remember the name of the band, but I might do. Dr. Robert, who was he in? Oh, the Blow Monkeys. That was it. Blow Monkeys did this fucking mate. I wanted some northern dancers in the video. Curtis was there. And I said to him, all right, mate, how you doing, Ned? And so, yeah, I can't even remember what I was yelling about. I was yelling about the stuff he recorded in Constellation. And like, hey, how the fuck do you know these records, man? And I'm like, oh, like, so what sort of stuff do you look Oh, yeah, yeah, and you work with him, you work with him. How do you know that? Hey, man, come on, let's go for dinner. Uh, so out for dinner with Curtis Mayfield. So the knowledge got me in with these people. Isaac Hayes as well. You know, I met him, I was DJing with him. He was on live, and I started yapping to him about stuff that he did when he was 16, which was the Astor's Twilight Zone. But nobody knows it's him. I know it's him. 
So I actually brought this record up and said to Isaac, can you sign that for us, pal? And I'm sure he thought it was shaft. And when he sees it, he sits down and, howie, howie, which is a nice, come here, look at this, look at this. How the hell did you know that was me? I was 16. I was 16. All oh, right, bro. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'll play it for you later on. No, could you play it for me now, please, sir? I'm like, there's nobody here yet. No, please, sir. So I put it on and he sits and starts crying. <laughs> and then he gets a cuddle and was like, oh, man, i got to get your numbers, man. How'd you get those records, man? And the reason I stayed friends with him was me getting to get to know them was the knowledge. I'm literally impressed with the knowledge that just make them laugh and everyone likes someone that makes them laugh and I tend to make folk laugh when I sit in the afternoon. <laughs> this, I mean, this obviously becomes your career. So you're, you're DJing all over the world. I yeah, have been since, so it kicked off when I did the first um, legendary deep punk compilation for BB. So I was doing clubs in London and a little bit about Britain. The Northern scene I was doing all over Britain, but once I, started, I got divorced in 1987, sold them in Northern, switched to the funk, Rocky Billy for myself, funk for the club. And I was going to clubs and handing out flyers for my deep funk night, and there was always this young black lad and young white lad across from me handing out flyers and introduced themselves. It's Peter Darqua and Ben from BB Records. Kev, you got to do a compilation for us. I'm like, I'm not fucking sharing my records to swipe like Daryl Peterson can claim they discovered them. No, 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 I found these bloody records. I'm playing them, you can bugger off. We'll put your name all over it and you, you'll get lots of young women and you'll be famous and it'll go on. And so I did the first compilation. Fucking hell, it was like within two weeks, I got a phone call. Yo, 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 is it Cape Dog? Yeah, I, who's this? It's Kenny Dope. Who? Kenny Dope. What? Masters at work. What? Are you in London? And all that, blah, blah, blah. Then I made pals with Kenny Dope and fucking Jazzy Death. Yo, man, you got some tunes, man. How you bust them tunes up? We ain't seen no tunes, man. Like, I will, I'm, you know, Northern scene collecting since 73, blah, blah, blah. And the Yankees fucking took me in like, I was this weird novelty. Seriously, fucking flying out to Miami and here's Jersey Jeff, Kenny Dope, all these stunts waiting for me at the airport. Hey, kid, come on, man. Let's go to the beach. All right, then. Fair enough. I had a wonderful time. Fucking everywhere. Every fucking company you could imagine I was flying about in. I'm still doing it, but near as much now as I was when I was on the funk thing. You know, Japan, I do Japan regularly. I'm sort of more popular in Japan than anywhere else in the world. Now, back in my radio days, I, I did the odd disco, right? This is not the same thing, but but hear me out. And there's for me, there was always that terror of the dance floor is busy. Is the next one going to keep them on the dance floor or, or completely clear it? It was not a relaxing thing. Is that part of the buzz as well? That is the next song going to work? Is you know that, that test of yourself? No, here's my ego coming in again. No, because I know that I've always played records that are fucking, these are going to get these fuckers going. And if they're not paying attention, I'll pick the microphone up and shout, listen, you fuckers, this will blow your heads off if you listen properly. And they do. And I've never really struggled. Never. It's, you play powerful records and you use the microphone properly, you get folks interested, they start dancing. And once you've got them dancing, it's a doddle unless they play pick. You know, if you put on a totally picked doll record, they'll stop dancing. But as long as you keep that power up and good quality, they keep dancing. Getting them started, uh, you'll need a few classics and a microphone, that's it. Once you've got them. And I've always been like that. In the last 40 years, there's been no problem. There's, I mean, there is that kind of absolute buzz, that power of the DJ. And when it's done properly and you're a great night out, it's, it's, there's nothing like it, is there? I know. It's ego. It's a big fucking buzz for your ego. It's the same as you go on the podium to get your gold medal, Scottish Taekwondo champion, or your dance. It's the same thing. Yeah, I won you, fuckers. You're all dancing to me. Nah, 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 nah. Ego. Wonderful. 
Now, obviously, music itself has changed so much. The digital age, you know, streaming services, that kind of thing. For you, has, has the kind of landscape of music discovery changed in that sense as well? Or are you still hunting out bins in vinyl shops, that kind of thing? No, I never really went to shops. I was always going to old uh, warehouses that had shut down, distributors or radio stations that shut down in the 60s in America and scouring through the junkers. I never really was a shop boy. And then going to dealers. So there's a hell of a lot. Of, there's always a lot of dealers who would stick adverts, and there were two newspapers, the Goldmine and Discovery, the American record collector newspapers. So I'd get all the addresses off that, write letters to them, and then skip out to the States to go through their warehouses. And some of them are fucking huge warehouses, like millions and millions of 45 to go through, and finding things that way. Nowadays, I'm an old man, I'm a lazy fucker, I'm making decent money, so I sit on the internet and just spend silly amounts of money on the records and save all the hard work. I enjoy the internet now. It was tight. I was bitten by rats and things like that in the past and shot at and all that stuff looking for records before. So sitting on your RFK on the computer, pressing a button, spending a grand and the record arrives a couple of weeks later, fine, happy with that. It is an expensive hobby now, though, even more so, isn't it? I mean, I say the hobby, this is like a proper career thing, but it's not cheap because people know what, often now they know what they're selling or they think they know the value of something they're selling. So you're paying thousands for these things, aren't you? Yeah, right. Yeah, and I remember when it all fucking started because no American dealer knew about Northern Soul and the value of Northern or very little about any black music back in the fucking 70s. And then this fucking idiot George Scott sent a 20-page price want list to all the dealers that I was dealing with in Discoveries from Britain, giving them all the fucking prices. And a week later, I goes, hey, you've been ripping us off. This bloke says it's worth $300. You gave me $3. I thought, you fucking idiot. And from then on, John Manson did his price guides. You got Rockabilly price guides, 60s garage price guides coming up. And now in every small hick village in America now, there's someone going around scouring for records, sticking adverts up. Has your uncle died yet? Oh, that's a shame. Can we have his records, please? All that sort of stuff. So it's the American market stored up. So you have to sit on the internet and spend the money. If I lived in America, I'd be out every day looking and scouring, you know, finding, oh, yes, your father died. That's a real shame. Can I have a look at his records, please? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk Weller. It is the Paul Weller fan podcast. We should get into it. When did you first meet? How was you? First, how did you first connect with Paul? It's not a silly story. This is true. In a urinal, comparing each other's penises. <laughs> I mean, you're very competitive, so I know, I know who you think won that competition. <laughs> so I was pals with Nicky. I used to do a stall at Camden Market, and Nicky was in a stall just across, and I got really pally with Nicky. And then she asked me to DJ at a birthday party one night. And I was DJing the way he goes for a piss. And then Paul comes into the toilet. Great tunes, man, and all that. Blah, blah, blah. All right, what's your name, Kev? Blah, 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 blah. All right, yeah, da, 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 da. Can you do dealing records? And then, yeah, do all a few records of master. Can you help me? All right, no bother. And then from then on, it was every fucking week he was phoning up. Can you get me one of these? Can you get me one of them? Oh, no bother. And he's got good taste. A lot of folks think, oh, he's, you know, just pretending. But no, he's bought some really good records. You can tell when someone's got real taste and someone's just doing it to impress. He's got good ears and he picks out the good stuff. But and toilet, it, that's my fault. <laughs> in the toilet, I love it. And so is he like a proper collector? Yeah, right. he's got a pretty good fucking collection. So I've got him to come and DJ with me quite a few times. I opened a new night at Madame Jojo's uh, called Lost and Found. Oh, Christ. 18 years ago or something. And I thought, right, this is a new night. I'd better do something to get a fucking buzz around it. Paul, Stefanti coming and DJing. Aye, what am I playing? Play your soul stuff. All right, no bother. That's it. So he came. And I had to fucking hide under the deck and cue the records up for him. 
pretending it was him. He'd move his hands to pen. He was doing them up when I was down under the decks, doing the records up and that and play it. But the records that were coming out of his box then were fucking good records. It was like, you know, nice, obscure Emmett Long, obscure soul stuff that, you know, you're like, oh, fucking hell, this guy knows his record. So, yeah, so he DJed with me quite a few times and I went away touring with him DJing for a wee bit in Europe and we had a lovely time. And you can tell, like I say, you look at a boy's record box, you can tell pretender or genuine collector and he's a genuine collector. Oh, that's brilliant. And what I really like about that as well is similar to, you know, I obviously read a lot of Paul's um, articles when he's interviewed and obviously for re- even more so for research for this podcast. You both have this this thing in common where you both have this ability to discover great music and this constant fascination with hunting out new music, whether it's, like I say, music of now or music that's just undiscovered. But you have brilliant taste, both of you, it would appear. So to me, it doesn't it seem like that's taste. That should be everyone's taste. And it's proved for your DJs. So if we play one of the records that we really like, everyone dances. If you play a record we don't like, people don't dance. So it would seem to me that it's not special. Everyone's got that taste. I don't understand why they don't all. You know, I can't understand DJs that play pish. I'm like, yeah, must this is pish. <laughs> How can you get the fuck sake? Unless you're on Radio 1 and you're forced to play it, but in a nightclub, you know, playing pish is like, how can you do that? You know, it's obvious what the good ones are. and So I don't think it's a special thing. It's, 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 it's so obvious what a great record is and what a pitch record is. Let's talk about the compilation. You mentioned Lost and Found. So it started as a club night at Madame Jojo's. That was it. So I was doing deep funk on a Friday night and getting bored. And at the end of a Friday night, I was dropping in a bit of rockabilly and a bit of 50s R&B and a wee bit of Northern sometimes. And at first, the crowd didn't get it. They thought, what the fuck's Kevin doing? He's gone fucking mad. You know, this is a funk club. And then out came the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line. Then Amy Winehouse started to go big. And then it started to take off. And I said to the owner woman, I said, look, here's a fucking Saturday night. I'll hammer this 50s, 60s sound that Amy Winehouse and them are pushing. I'll hammer it like hell. And she said, oh, but you have to have another DJ with you. I thought, oh, do I? And she gave me a list of famous names. I thought, but they're all wankers. I went at the Sandy Smith boy. He plays a bit of Northern. He'll do. And so we started the night with Paul, as I say. And then Paul would just fucking phone up once I'm in town, I've got some records, can I come and play? I go on. And I enjoyed the fact that we never advertised them. We kept it secret because with a deep funk, I used to get all the big boys coming up to DJ and I thought, I'm not going to advertise. You know, fucking Jazzy Jeff, all those boys popping in playing records and the audience went, fucking hell, that's Jazzy Jeff. They never advertised. So folk would come thinking there's going to be someone tonight and most nights there wasn't. But I got their money. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that. I mean, I don't think anybody knows this, that Weller was up DJing. I did. I did quite a few times, yeah. Uh, enjoying it and all that. There's a video of me and him on YouTube. Uh, was it called? I did some lecture at the Victorian Albert Museum. And they've got that. And then it's pointed to me and Paul blazing fucking drunk DJing at Georgia's and all that. And we're both we're getting interviewed. I was fucking right, you bastard. And Paul's the same. Oh, you know what? You're best mate. Right, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how excellent. Uh, so this is uh, so. Uh, and when did talk start in terms of it doing a compilation? So at that point, you're doing the soul spectrum, jazz spectrum, funk spectrum. That relationship's going really well in terms of the record label. But when did you start talking with Paul about doing a compilation together? I remember, I think BBE might have said to me, "Get your mate Paul to do a compilation." And I said, "Paul, do you fancy doing it?" He said, "Yeah." So he's done another one. He's doing one for us. It's now, uh, I work at Ace Records now. I don't know if you know that. Been at Ace Records for a couple of years and Paul's doing another one. You're on your own this time, Paul. It's your favourite records from the past and your life story. 
those things. In fact, we've done it. But it's just down to Ace now to license the last few drugs, and it'll be out quite soon. Nice. Oh, wow. Exciting. That's a proper exclusive. So in terms of this one, how did it work? Because obviously, yes, you have, you create a list and you have to then license these records. Were you working on it together? Because the idea is that one's, one CD is, or, or the vinyl is you, the other one's Weller. So you kind of split it in half. So with me, with every compilation I do, Maybe or it's Ace now, I'll do a comp tab, all right, what I'll do is go and pick out my favourite fucking 20 records at the time that I'm playing as a DJ. There's your set. Takes me five minutes to do. With Paul, it was pick out 14 or whatever of your favourite records in the 60s and all that. No bother, here you go, kid. Took him fucking half an hour to do. That was it. But I'll give him his due. I got a phone call. I was up in Scotland. I get a phone call from the He says, I've just seen the sleeve. It's not right. What's wrong with Paul? Well, it's got my name at the top in big writing and your name in smaller writing, Kev. I'm telling him to change that. I said, all right. And he fucking did. He got them to put my name on top above his. I'm like, you know more than this about this than I do, so I'm putting your name on the top. I thought, thank you very much, Paul. It's very nice of you. The record label weren't they happy. They wanted a great big, oh, well, get dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair play. That's, that's cool, wasn't it? That's really good. So this is, and the idea of this is, it's different though in terms of the brief, right? So did that idea of the type of music come from you or him? Because this wasn't just the type of stuff you were playing at Lost and Found. It was, yeah. So it was to represent what we were playing at Lost and Found in the sort of 50s, 60s era. So there wasn't any 70s at Lost and Found. It was 50s and 60s. All of it. Um, okay. But, but very so, clearly all black music, right? Uh, no, General Assembly was on there. So there was uh, one white record on my side, definitely. A northern record, but it's a white group. Yeah. But yeah, with Paul, it was all black music. Yeah, yeah. He was moaning at me when I was playing rock. Really. What the fuck are you playing that shit for? I think you're a guitarist, you fucking listen. Pay attention, but he wouldn't. <laughs> you might learn something. Come on. That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what we get is that all these really early R&B songs, plenty of rarities, some classics on there, loads of lovely surprises as well. And and ultimately, I guess the key thing was there were plenty of dance floor bangers. That's the point, right? This was a record that you could bust your taekwondo moves to. This was a record. Yeah, it was really for me. So you don't get much money off BB when you do a compilation. Yeah. It's all right, there's not much. So this was for me to promote my DJ set and the club itself, Lost and Found. And I made a fucking fortune of DJing and the club itself. You know, I didn't expect them much. So if you want to do that, don't put shit on your compilation. Make sure they're really good records. And folk will think, oh, that looks like a good club. Let's go there. We can hear these tunes. So that was the idea. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
I read an interview with Paul talking about the release at the time, and he talks about this idea of creating an album where it was almost like, you know, when you get, an, I think this is how he talks about it. He said, it's like when you get a new song and you love it and you want to play it to your mates. And that to him was the concept of the album, that kind of buzz of, here's this thing and I want to share it. Ah, exactly that. That's, yeah, that was him. He said that in that interview as well. He says, you know, when you get a new record and you want to play it over, playing it over the phone to your mates, which we used to do in the 70s, play it a record over the phone to your fella. That sounds ludicrous now. <laughs> totally. You'd be sat on the stairs as well. Your mum would go, hey, so-and-so's wrong. Oh, he's got a song to play me down the phone. Yeah, that was quite normal. <laughs> it was. Records were the big thing in the 70s. Uh, yes. So he was brought up exactly the same way. That physical vinyl thing was such an important... And it's coming back now as well, which is lovely. But it was such an important thing, wasn't it? You'd, ca- you'd take it to your mates, you'd take it to parties, you'd carry these things around with you, you, you might swap and lend stuff. Yeah, it was, uh, the physical thing of having it is lovely. It also lasts better than CDs and stuff like that. I like the labels, you know. I've got a normally think about pretty obscure labels where you can see that the mother's drawn the label for the band and there was no record label involved, you know, and there's a hundred copies pressed. I love all that stuff. I mentioned to some of the fans of the podcast that you're coming on and um, we've got some questions from the fans here, okay, particularly around the compilation, but other things as well. So John Linger says, were there any of Paul's choices on this excellent compilation that surprised you? Long. Mainly because it's like, it's like a 2,000 pound record now. Oh, bloody hell, yeah, he really does like that. Them at long, I can't remember what it's called, Yellow Label. Call me. I must admit, it was me that gave it to him, but I'd forgotten about the bloody thing. And then for <laughs> him to pick one of his favourites, was like, oh, fucking hell, it's one of his favourites. And I felt quite tough to have given it to the boy. Nice, okay. Paul Hargate says, which of Weller's choices didn't make the final album? And he said, and also he says, thanks for including A Dream by The Creations. What a banger that is. Yes, so is the other side, right. Both sides of that Creations record have come under. I played it at the um, Stafford anniversary thing just a few months ago. I dug out my Creations. I've not touched the record for 20 years or so. Who stuck it on there? Hey, I've no idea which ones didn't make it. I'm bugging it for the men, but when you get a list, you give it to the label, they license what they can and say, we can't get these, but we've got these ones. I'll be buggered. I'm sorry, mate. I can't even remember what didn't <laughs> make it. Didn't make it because all that shit, mate. You're not putting that on. None of that happened. It was just down to license. I was going to say, there was nothing where you had to kind of put a red line through and go, what's the guy? What's he on about? Yeah, no. Did that with Rizzo, though. <laughs> <laughs> Fanboy, I did a compilation with him. What a pile of fucking shit. And I spoke to him about records. So I thought, oh Christ, this guy knows fuck all about black music. You know, he's pretending. I thought, I'll change the subject. Let's talk about martial arts. He's a big martial arts fan. And he comes out with, I'm not, I didn't study a particular style. I'm a fourth generation of Master Wu Tang Tiger Claw style. I thought, I write your talking site, pal. I thought, what a fucking idiot. Sorry, Rizzo, if you're listening, but you probably know. <laughs> Did the compilation happen with him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the compilation happened, and he was meant to come and do a tour with us to promote it. And uh, it's out the Rizzo crowd. What is it? Kings of Funk it is. Kev Dodds and Rizzo. And then Pete from BB phones me up and says, Kev, Kev, phone Rizzo, will you? He likes you. He's thinking of cancelling the tour because his mates died. I was oh, dear me, that's a shame. All right, please phone him up. He likes you, he likes you. So phone the fucker up. He says, all right, I hear you're going to cancel it. Oh, my mate died. Oh, that's the same. What did he die of? Oh, drug overdose. Oh, it's his own fucking fault then. We jumped. Then we went before him. And that was- <laughs> uh, Mark Thompson says, I used to go to Keb's soul nights at Madame Jojo's in Soho back in the 90s. My memory's going a bit these days. Can you ask him when and why he stopped doing them? Uh, I stopped doing them because I fucked off to live in the Philippines. Uh, I 
married a Filipino young lady and all that. And then I went out to see her family on this wee jungle island, which you're not meant to go to because the local gorillas will kidnap you and sell your kidneys. And I found out the gorillas are all her relatives. So I went to this wee jungle island and I fucking fell in love with the place. I was like, fuck, I want to live here. This is brilliant. It's so peaceful. And Japan's just over there, two hours away. And I can work in Japan every week instead. That'll be brilliant. So I sold my flat and then fucked off to live in the Philippines and gave the club over to Snowboy. Snowboy got the Friday night and Andy Smith got the Saturday night and now buggered off to the Philippines, which was wonderful. And then a geek big typhoon came and fucking wiped out the town I was in, killed all my neighbours, killed my 15 of my wife's family and all that. And it was, well, fucked back to London again. So we're rebuilding the house still. Wow, Jesus Christ, bloody hell. Andy Kennedy says, on the on the um, connection with Weller, are you still friends? Oh, I I speak to him quite regularly. Well, yeah, I was chatting to him about this Ace compilation. So it was me that got him into Ace to do the compilation and we're still, yeah, and all that. I think since he stopped drinking, though, he's cut down his contact with me. I'm getting the impression that Hannah's telling him I'm a bad influence and all that because we used to go and get fucking hammered and all that. And since he stopped drinking, I've not seen much. We speak a lot and go out for coffees. I've met him at the bar. I tell you, for coffees of an afternoon, but I can't get the fucker to come out drinking. <laughs> I get the impression that you are a bad influence. So <laughs> that's probably fair comment. Oh, dear. <laughs> Joe Nellis says what is Keb's favourite memory of the northern soul scene what song still gives him that rush for the floor and he said P.S. I don't think I've ever had that CD out of the car it's a mainstay favourite memory of the northern scene it wouldn't be one memory it'd be the fucking fun with the troops the Scottish troops going down to Wigan was fucking billion fun fight for the punks when we got uh, this thing terrible didn't it we got uh, not the stakes the buzzcocks were pulled off this Wigan because of the fights we had with the punks the week before and all that. It was an exciting night. Basically, like you'd do like big weekenders. So you'd be at a different place on the Friday, then the Saturday, then the Sunday. These, these coaches would take you from place to place, would they? You'd get a coach to the casino and all that. And then there wasn't always a... Most of the Aberdeen coaches would do the casino and then back. And if you wanted to go to the Blackpool Met or you wanted to go to the Manchester Ritz or whatever, you'd get local buses or hitch it and all that so when I first started going I was hitching down all the fucking time on me on because there was no one in Aberdeen going but eventually the scene built up in Aberdeen and we could organise coaches to go down but they just wanted to go to the casino and back again so I'm, eventually I moved down to Livingwigan I moved to Livingwigan in 1977 and all that I got a job in a hotel I've got a brilliant five minutes walk to the casino I'm staying here so my fondest memory was the people really the me mates they were fucking brilliant fun. they were all wild lively people I look at the northern scene now, what a shower of boring fucking fuck. Jesus Christ. All the wild ones, of course, are dead because they took too many drums or whatever. <laughs> I've had an exciting life. And what's left are the really boring fuckers that used to sit around at Wigan looking and I'm too shy to dance. Now they're wearing fucking clown costumes and bouncing around like they We went to Wigan, you know. I went to Wigan. I, I. I remember you maybe went once to get a boring fuckers now. The real Wigan crowd, I really enjoyed them. They were good, lively people and all that. That's my best memory. What was your other question, Jacob? What song still gives you that rush for the floor? You know, for a lot of these new, cool northern crowds, they'd say, oh, Burning Bush is not cool, it's a white artist and all that. But to me, it's like, wow, when I first heard that, it blew my fucking head off. I thought, whoa, this is the best record I've had in my life. And it's still my favourite northern record. Just so good. But it's a Scottish accent, a burning, as in fire, burning a bush. Uh, okay. the, uh, what's his name? Moses or whoever it was saw it in the days of that one. Burning bush keeps on burning. 
wonderful record. It was the biggest record in the northern scene in 1978, I think, 77 or 78. It became huge in the badges. Keep on burning, keep on burning, keep on burning because of that record. And I still love it. If someone put that on, I'd leap to the floor and tipple myself. <laughs> Bring out your taekwondo moves. Now, so you mentioned with Weller when he was with you doing the DJ. So you went to Europe, is that right? Yeah, Germany, Belgium, I can't even remember. And uh, I mind fucking coming back to Belgium. We've got the train station, we've got the tickets booked and all that. And Paul's like, do us a favour, but take my record to him. I'm off to Amsterdam. I'm off fuck's sake, Paul. <laughs> and he just fucked off to Amsterdam and left me with his record. So I like, Jesus Christ, get a grip. We were, here you go. Staging in Belgium, and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, he's going a bit hard here, he's going a bit hard here, Christ, he's going to die, the fuck, oh, God almighty. So I was looking after him, DJ, and then we goes back to the hotel, and I puts him in his room, and goes to my room to go to sleep, and thinks, thanks, fuck, he's asleep now. I'll get a decent sleep, I don't have to worry about him anymore. Fucking eight in the morning, bang on my door, come on, Kev, the bar's open. <laughs> I fucking dragged out to the bar at eight in the morning, I'm like, oh, Jesus, oh, man, calm down. But I felt obliged to go with him and drink at eight in the bloody morning. <laughs> oh, wow. Somebody said to me, oh, you should get Keb on. He nearly killed Paul Weller. So it wasn't me. It was himself. He was going wild. And I think possibly this is me being a bad influence. I think I inspired him to go wilder or whatever. I can't go on everything that he did. You know, and there was tricks to the toilet and stuff like that. But yeah, he was a fun-loving chap. And... Seemed to love fun a bit too much for me because I was a fun-loving chap too and we had a really good laugh together. And yeah, I did think at one point, oh Christ, I'm going to be the one that's going to fucking have to tell the world Paul died in his toilet and surrounded by his own vomit and pee. Oh no, but I didn't. This passion for music and this this passion for collecting um, an ego, like you talk, talk about, it feels like that's kind of weaves its way through everything in your life. If you had cut you in half like a stick of rock, that would be the kind of essence of you, your DNA, right? You've missed a paint tiny little soldiers and I paint them. And, you know, I won fucking painting competitions and Britain's best war games figure painter. I went mad on that. And I do Nakamura Uba, I do a Japanese sword. I've got seven Japanese swords in the Philippines and I've practice cutting all day when I was living in the Philippines. So, yeah, fanatical, obsessive about anything I get into, which is good, you know, because it makes you, with a taekwondo, it made me train. I get home from school and fucking train before your dinner, then have your dinner, then train again and all that, and it's good. And I suppose if you want to be very good at something, you need to push yourself, push yourself, push yourself. And in terms of the music, so how big is the collection now? Well, it's not that big. So I've been divorced three times. Oh. <laughs> Times was based on the records. You love those records more than you love me. Well, you knew that when we got married. Well, when are you going to sell them and settle down? What do you mean? <laughs> I haven't settled down. DJing. No proper offer. So three divorces, sold three collections and all that. So it's not that big, but it's fucking good. So about three, four thousand records, but all really good, pure, nice. Good records, records worth having, type thing. No padding. So when you get divorced, I saw my main big tunes first, then I get rid of all the fucking padding. You know, when I was going to the States, I built up loads of fucking padding. So flog all that shit and then keep the sort of middling stuff and start buying the expensive stuff back again. As soon as the woman's gone, then you're free. I married again 17 years ago, and it's wonderful. My wife lends me money to buy records. She said, oh, if you want it, honey, and you can't afford it, I'll lend you the money. Fucking brilliant. Big change. <laughs> you finally got it right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> What's next for you? Yeah, I'm just talking about DJing. So I've gone mad on 60s garage. I didn't know fuck all about 60s garage before. I mind um, DJ Shadow and Kirk came up saying, Kirk, man, you should have get into garage. You'd like the garage. It's like the northern. And I thought, oh, no, it's all hippie shit, like your fantastic, plastic, exploding bubble machine nonsense. No, thank you, pal. When I was in the Philippines, I was going to Japan regularly DJing, but I wasn't DJing at a place called Kobe, which I'd done from the late 80s, you know, up until the late 90s or early 2000s, I was getting no booking. So I said to my Japanese agent, like, how come I know again? Kobe, well, you're not playing Northern anymore, kid. So I said, oh, I'll better buy some Northern. But I didn't want to buy the Northern that everyone else is buying, like the really soulful stuff. But I'm going to buy all that nasty white guitar Northern they used to play at Wigan that everyone's ignoring now. So I phoned a record dealer, Barry Wickham. I'm looking for stuff like the Seven Dwarfs or Burning Bush or the Dead Beats. And he says, you mean Garage Cab? No, no, I mean quite nasty northern. It's called Garage Cab. Like, no, I, no, play me some Garage Records. And then he put on a couple of Garage Records. I was like, holy shit. Give me that. Give me that. What else have you got? Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. And then for the last 10 years, I've just gone mad on 60s Garage. Because there's so many. And so many really, really fucking good ones. There are just so many, and you can get records from all around the world, which means there's more than most other styles are collected. So I reckon I'll die collecting garbage. <laughs> there's not a regular club night now. So where would people? How would people know to go to to find a Keb Daj club night an evening out? Have to get me on Instagram, Keb Daj on Instagram. Sitting all over the place. I'm in Scotland tomorrow, Italy the week after, back to Japan in a couple of weeks. So. I just flitter about whenever anyone books me, I'll go and play me lovely records and all that. I was wanting to do my own club and all that, but the place I was going to do it at fucking got destroyed with um, lockdown. In fact, a lot of the wee clubs that I was thinking about, you know, if I do a weekly club, I'm going to have a 200 capacity place. I don't want a great big in and I don't want a tiny 40 one. I want one where people can come and have fun. Most of them have been minced and the ones that are left are booked up for the next 3,000 years. I think, oh, fuck it, I'll just do the guest DJ thing then. Okay, so the Instagram is where we need to keep an eye on. Now tell me about this Weller compilation then. So currently you've been working with Ace Records then, and was it your idea to get Paul to do another compilation then? The three guys that owned this, uh, Roger and all that, sold all the digital rights and left us with it. So the workers now own the company, left us with a new warehouse and all the stocks and a wee floats and all that. And I was thinking, right, how can we get a bit more money into the coffers? We need to get some killer stuff out there. Paul, he's, you know, when you're, when you're in trouble <laughs> and you need a boost, phone Paul. So I phoned Paul up and said, you fancy doing a compilation like the last scene of all your soul favourites for the 60s and all that for Ace Records? You thought, I fucking love that label, man. I've got loads of Ace stuff and all that. Yeah, of course I will. No bother, kid. So he did it within a fucking week. You know? He says, <laughs> Since last week. Right, when's it finished? Is it finished? I'm doing it. No, yeah, no, yeah. Okay, I've got volume two ready. So he's keen. Volume two? Oh my God, wow. Didn't ask him for a volume two, but he's got it ready in case we want a volume two. Wow, that's amazing. But also, it feels like, could there, I mean, there could be a radio show in this where he's playing the songs, he's, you and him are talking about them, that kind of thing it would be really cool. All right, yeah. Well, that's one thing I'm not very good at. He's probably better than me on that. Details about singers and artists and all that. I never gave a cock about who was playing the fucking bass on this or whatever. I just wanted to track down the records and have them, and I'm not very good, so I couldn't really talk about the artists. Even the famous artists, I don't know much about them, you know. <laughs> and has this album got, got a name, this compilation album? Well, I don't know what we're going to call it. Actually. No, 
No, yeah, no. Paul Weller, someone that. Nice down to East for that one. All right, well, we'll keep an eye out for this. This is really exciting. Hey, look, this has been great, man. I've got two final questions for you before you go. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council, or solo. What would you go with? It'll be a jam one. And I kind of think, uh, so I really like all the old jam stuff because I didn't hear it when it was out. I didn't pay attention. All of that entertainment, I enjoy that. Eating rifles, I don't know. I'm not a jam fan, to be honest, but I really like some of Paul's records. You know, and I did sit on stage where I'm thinking, fucking hell, Paul, these are great songs, man, not knowing that they were his songs. Then. Those two are pretty good ones to pick, to be fair. Yeah, he'll probably poo-poo me and think, oh, why are you so, you have to move here and move to the future. Like, yeah, but I saw you sitting on a stool playing once, I'm sitting waiting to DJ, I was like, for fuck's sake, Paul, put some balls into it, and all that, but yeah. So like, one of them eating rifles of uh, the Let's Entertainment. All right. Now, final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Keb, is to meet lovely people like yourself, hear your stories and the connections with Mr. Weller as we go through this journey. And we're now on, what is this, episode 161, for goodness sake. But the idea is, the reason I created the podcast was to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career is my one big regret from giving up life as a radio broadcaster that I didn't get to interview Weller. So if it happens off the back of this podcast, what should I ask him? Why did you give up drinking your boring bathroom? <laughs> no, it's still fun. We went out for the coffee. It was still fun, but the fun days seem to have gone. Yeah, I know why you gave drinking exactly. Of course, no, there was that video video in Germany with him and Hannah falling about, and he was horribly embarrassed. So yes, that's why he gave up drinking. But and well done to them. I salute them. But come on out some nights of fun. You know, coffees are all right in the afternoon, but that's my question, Tim. <laughs> when are you going to have again? <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to have a night out with Kev? <laughs> hey man, this has been so lovely. I will put more details in the show notes on how people can find you, details about the compilations and all that stuff. Uh, but thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, brother. Pleasure talking to you. Cheerio, bye, listeners. Well, there you are. My thanks once again to the fabulous Keb Darge for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I told you there were a few little swears in there, didn't I? <laughs> I did my best, honest. Wasn't he great? You can find photos and details about that compilation album that we spoke about on my website. Just head to the show notes for this episode. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, look, I say this every single episode, but if you'd love to show your support, you could help us out by diving into our store. Not only will you find official merchandise in there, including our podcast mug, T-shirts, sweatshirts for the autumn nights coming very soon, I'm afraid. Just head to the store paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can even get yourself a virtual coffee if you fancy it, just three quid, or set up a subscription, and we give you a shout-out on the podcast. Doing that over the past week or so, Jamie Hunter, hello Jamie, says, Hi Dan, your warm personality comes across so well on these brilliant podcasts that really put your guests at ease, not to mention all the hard work that you're putting in. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jamie. Love your kind words. Thanks very much for getting in touch. Thanks also to Mal in Newcastle. Says, great show, Dan. Just listen to Andy McDonald's show. What a great fella. Your show proves how many lovely, talented people that are still out there. Paul is obviously a great judge of character, so I'm sure you'll be part of his inner circle before too long. And then there's a winky, smiley face emoji. <laughs> well, fingers crossed, right? Alex McLaughlin, thank you to you once again for your virtual coffee. Hello to a few subscribers. Martin Bonhom, Mike C, Simon Carslidge. Martin Glover. Hello to Grants. Thank you, mate. Martin Morrow. Thank you, sir. Brian G and Mike Steer. 
Thanks to all of you for your virtual coffee. If you want to get involved, just head to my store. As I say, it's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And no worries. Look, if you can't afford it, times are tight right now. I do appreciate your continued support. So give us a retweet or a re-X or whatever that is right now on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. Social media is the word. That's what I'm saying. Share this episode on your Facebook, on your Instagram, on your threads, on your TikTok. Heck, ring a Paul Weller loving friend right now and say, hey, have you checked out the latest episode? What do you mean you're not even listening to any of these episodes? Check out the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.